previously on the Big Hairy Eyeball Podcast. And where I used to go to get my reading material, which was which was Gerard Book and News mm-hmm. in downtown Gerard, Ohio, um, the the guy who who owned it and ran it, Louis Batella, I mean, he had you had to go up a couple of steps and and then you were you were he had a, a whole station of these things, you know. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't within five or six years, it wasn't just um a couple of skin magazines, you know. Right. There's still published horror stories and Stephen right. King horror stories. It was now a raft of this stuff where it was basically porn because yeah. it was a porn explosion in the 70s, you know. And so that took care of any dreams of trying to write for men's magazines and maybe getting a penny a word, you know, mm-hmm. for some suspense story to be in Cavalier magazine or something. They all changed, you know. Yeah. Even yeah. the, you know, the first, second, third tier magazines all changed, you know. So it was it was the fanzines or it was... um. Uh, fantastic, mm-hmm. or maybe Ellery Queen or something like that. You had to right. go to the digest then, you know, is what yeah. it was. Amazing stories. Amazing story stories, around, that right. kind of yeah. stuff. But before um, I, I hit them very hard, I'd actually sold my first novel. And that was a direct direct result of being so familiar with, with Robert E. Howard. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Big Hairy Eyeball podcast, the podcast that knows no bounds, nor much of anything else. I'm your host, Pete Pollock, and this week on the show, David C. Smith, part two. That's right, uh, David was uh, such a big personality and had so many things to say that we stretched him into two episodes. Um, you know, normally I don't, uh, I'm not looking to to make, uh, I think I talked a little bit about this last time, but I'm not looking to make uh, giant uh, story arcs and uh, multiple episodes uh, out of each person. But, uh, you know, Dave and I had a nice long conversation. It was probably a good hour and a half or something like that. And uh, I thought, well, that's a little long for a show. And, you know, I realize you guys have stuff to do and you don't necessarily want to devote, uh, you know, all your time just to listening to my show. People listen to podcasts probably listen to multiple shows and, uh, you know, that, that's what you do. So, you know, I, I kind of went into it last week thinking, or a couple weeks ago, uh, thinking I'll trim it down. I'll, I'll get it down to a, a more normal size, you know, like uh, trying to aim for about an hour or so. And, uh, you know, I, I started to slice and dice. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable audio editing. I've done quite a bit in that in my life. And uh, I just thought, you know, I, I don't really, there's nothing here that I really want to cut out. I, we had a nice conversation, and I, I feel like it deserves its full breadth. Uh, B-R-E-A-D-T-H, breadth, you know, but breadth, 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 you know, something like that. Anyway, low carb. But uh, so Dave and I, uh, you know, we had this nice conversation. I thought, let's just do the whole thing, in, and we'll just split it into two episodes. So that's what I did. So we've got part two of the episode, uh, uh, part two of the conversation today, and cover a little bit more of uh, Dave's most recent book, a little bit more of uh, the art side of things, and, uh, you know, art, commerce, and all these things that fit together, and how personalities work, and I think it's a pretty good talk. So I'm not going to waste too much time here, but uh, enjoy the rest of the conversation, and I'll see you on the other side. Uh, what, what happened was that I decided that I would, after writing these fanzine short stories for a while, I decided I would try my hand on a novel. And it was, it, it was very ambitious. <laughs> I decided to write Oron, you know, which would uh-huh. be like, like a, the Iliad or the Aeneid or something, you right, know. Right. And I did it in 24 chapters, like 24 books. And it, was, yeah. but it took place in this, this epical period that, you know, before Atlantis sank, and I bought all the stuff from Howard and Clark Ash and Smith, you know, and everything. And um, I wrote it the best way that I could. It eventually got into print. Initially, mm-hmm. you know, what you do back then was, I mean, you you type up your manuscript, and it's in the box that the, the paper came in, you know. Uh-huh, right. Because good, good, <laughs> good paper used yeah. to come in, you know, used to come in boxes, you know. And um, and you, you cut up a... a um, a brown paper garbage or garbage uh, um, grocery sack, 
Yeah. You know, and and you tape it up and then you send it, you know, first class as much as it weighs to, you know, Ace Books or or whoever is in. And now, am I correct? This is your copy. This is the copy. This is the copy. Like if the if 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 the mail truck turns over or the boat sinks, yeah. it's gone. That's it's it. gone. Yeah. I have. I would keep two carbons. Okay. Because you know, uh, at least that way. Well, so you were the, thinking ahead. I was thinking ahead. All right. And one of the carbons you would share with your other writers. You would share with the people you had met, mm-hmm. um, as you know, who also wrote for for Space and Time mm-hmm. or some of the other fanzines. And that's exactly indirectly how how this happened. Um, <clears throat> I had written to <clears throat> the editor of a, of a magazine or a fanzine that was devoted to H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. And I had noticed something interesting about some of these weird names that H.P. Lovecraft used and his incantations, you know, mm-hmm. to, the, to the, the old ones and these gods and everything. Um, and uh, I, total nerd that I am, I used to spend Sundays, you know, in the stacks at the Youngstown State University Library because mm-hmm. they had a remarkable library, just remarkable one. And um, they had a collection of these books from 1915, 1916, where someone had had transliterated Sumerian cuneiforms, and wow. then and then had tried to translate That's a niche. Them. That's a niche. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm looking at these things, and and ancient Sumerian. If you ever look at it, you know, mm-hmm. not that I've mastered it, yeah, by any means, but it was it was all syllabic. Mm-hmm. So that's where you get, you know, Nindin Giratsu or something, you know, and right. for names of kings and that kind of, you know, whatever it might be. And so there's all these syllables that by themselves look like Ia, Ia, Shub, Nagorath. And all right, right. All the, yeah. And I'm all like, the stuff that Lovecraft. Holy, holy smoke. I wonder if there's something here. So I, I wrote a letter to, to um, who was it at that time? Um, uh, oh, I'll think of his name. In a second, he's been around. He's another one of these guys who's been in the field forever. I'll think of his name. Mm-hmm. And he said, This is very interesting. I, I, I can't make use of it, but I sent it to Dirk Mosig, who's a Lovecraft scholar and he teaches at a college in, in Georgia. So uh, Dirk wrote back, <coughs> Dr. Mosig wrote back and said, This really fascinates me because of where he was in the chain of, of universities in America. He could request. Um, books that might have been available to Lovecraft at that time mm-hmm. from uh, the university from Provi- in Providence, you know, um, the university in Providence. So they did indeed have this stuff on hand there in Providence in 1916 and 1920 mm-hmm. when Lovecraft was writing this stuff. There was no, you know, book card, you know, no, right, right. you know, showing that Lovecraft had taken this book out or anything. Right. But it was the fun. little, the little thing, the, the little, yeah, in the, the, pocket. the pocket in yeah. the back, yeah, you know. <laughs> Um, that they stamp, you know, there's no way to get, you know, none of that. Um, and they couldn't find any note cards and, you know, they used to have these little, you know. Right. You know. Um, well, this is what, 40, 50 40 oh God. years later. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. so. Um, but it's a little bit of, talk about niche stuff, you know, this library right, right. science type stuff going back to the 19-teens and 1920s. But, but Dirk mentioned it to a friend of his who was Dick Tierney. Mm-hmm. Now, Dick's very well known in the field. He's written a lot of important science fiction and fantasy. And at the time, he was living, I think, in St. Paul or something. And so Dirk said, I think Dick Tierney would be, Richard L. Tierney would be interested in this. Can I send it to him? And I said, sure. So at the same time, Dirk had a, a manuscript of Dick's, one of Dick's um, uh, very exuberant, over-the-top science fiction novels. I think it was The Winds of Tsar, mm-hmm. where his time traveler goes back to the time of ancient Egypt, the time of Moses, you know, and interferes with what we think are biblical stories, but actually tie in with some large science fiction plot of his. Mm-hmm. So, so I read that, and this, this is great, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, you yeah, know yeah. He's, he's being transgressive and poking his, his fingers in the eyes of, you know, traditional religious thought um, and having fun with it too, you know, like old-time science fiction. Mm-hmm. So I read his novel, and he read mine. And again, this kind of coincidental thing, there was a group of Lovecraft fans who put out fanzines and i did as well for a while mm-hmm. they would produce a little fanzines and send it to a central editor it was an it was um an amateur press association or united press association these go back 100 years mm-hmm. and this was more or less devoted to lovecraft and um so the man who was the editor of that at that time found out about this you know uh, in fact i think i joined by that time and he he was driving up to the twin cities for an Oktoberfest that fall. 
and Dirk Mosig coincidentally was going to be there and Dick Tierney was going to be there and a bunch of other people that I'd seen their names in letter column. I didn't know these people. I was, you know, a, um, a, a nerd, you know, <laughs> right, right. In, in Liberty Township, Ohio, yeah. you know. It was about actually far reading away. the names in the letter column. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, exactly. So I went there and, and um, I gave Dick his manuscript back and, and he said, I'd like to send yours to a friend of mine who just went to New York to try to become uh, to become an agent. Mm-hmm. Can I send it to him? And I was like, well, yeah, if I get an agent, I mean, you know. So the agent was Kirby McCauley. He had been selling insurance for Sears, mm-hmm. but he'd been doing his homework and he'd traveled around the country trying to enlist clients, you know, or the estates of, you know, clients, maybe people who had died, you know, right, right. already, but he wanted to represent them and get them in the paperback. And Kirby hustled. I mean, he he got to New York and he that hustled. That seems like a great plan to get estates. Yeah. Because then you're not dealing with an author who could just be a pain in the butt. He, you're he just worked de- with the living <laughs> relative. Just some money and you'll exactly. be happy. Yeah. So for, I know that he got a lot of Seabury Quinn, who'd been one of the most popular writers for Weird, Tale, Weird, Weird Tales readers, 20s, 30s, 40s. He had um, he'd gotten the rights to a lot of his, his fiction from the estate. And those were reprinted in the 70s, mm-hmm. you know. So he was able to do a lot of that stuff. And uh, so he was able to do that. Um, he got rights to short, short stories and got those published in anthologies. And this is the horror boom, you know, mm-hmm. of the 70s and into the 80s. And so he, he was instrumental in kind of trying to help in, in, try, in causing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget, what was the anthology that he did? He did a number of paperback anthologies. And then he brought out one, and I forget the title now. I think Dick was in it. I wasn't in it. Dick was in it. But everyone who eventually became pretty critically important to to horror fiction as it became this big commercial enterprise in the 80s, they were represented in that in that collection of his. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, he became Stephen King's agent. Mm-hmm. He engineered that. So King King was already doing well. He had sold to Doubleday mm-hmm. um, a couple of his first couple of novels. He didn't need an agent. He was already making money. Hollywood had already bought the rights to carry. You mm-hmm. know, they were looking at The Shining. So he he was doing fine by himself. But Kirby was able to to sign him and get him to move up, I think, to Viking, I think, was the first one, and get him some real big money mm-hmm. and promote him. And so this this is where the era of um, rock star authors began, you know. We rock are, star authors? Rock, yeah, star, yeah. rock star authors. Yeah. And you become a name brand, you know. Right. And that's, that's you know, all this coincided that became, you know, took place at this time because it was the rise of chain bookstores. Uh-huh. So this is this huge industrial grade commercialization of authors. Mm-hmm. And so King was able to fit into that. There were a couple of mystery writers who did it. And then, of course, as we know, other writers who came along. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Missioner, I think. Exa- be, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so there was, I mean, who was the woman that wrote Piddles in the Attic or Shadows in the Attic or something? I mean, oh, yeah, her, yeah, yeah. Her, her gig was yeah. Imperiled Children. Right. In twisted families, Being you know, stuck in the exactly, yeah, kind you of know, a gothic. I, all I, that I never stuff. read those. I no, I, I read, I read a couple because yeah. yeah, I wanted to try to become flowers a in the attic. Flowers in the attic. That that's it. it. Yep. That's it. Petals, flowers. Yeah. <laughs> um, John Saul was one who did huge at that time. You know, mm-hmm. um, selling his stories and this Michael is, Crichton. Michael also, Crichton. Yeah, Michael another, Crichton. Another deliberately wrote novels that he did so they'd be bestsellers and then move to the movies, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And then later on, you get people like... Which uh, is a gig. It's a gig. He's, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's making a living. Yep. You know, he's, the checks aren't a bouncing. People, a lot of people aren't. A lot of people, you know, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, you know, he's succeeding at it, you know. Um, we, you know, no one looks, I don't think anyone looked down their nose at that. Yeah. And so that, that then became the era of the rock star authors, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that led into, you know, Peter Straub, and um, who's the one my mother used to read all the time? I had read. I actually read his book on how to write. I'll think of his name, not Peter Straub, um, but but he also moved into that. He was mm-hmm. kind of like the B side Stephen King, you know, for a right. while. Um, oh, I'll think of his name in a second. Um, but my mother used to sit there and just devour his books, and my aunt used to sit there and devour his books. You know, my mom was reading all the Daniel Steele books. Exa- Daniel Steele's like another one. Yeah, yeah another exactly. One, yeah. This is what you do, you know. It's that... Everybody knows the name of this author. Everybody Even knows, if they exactly. don't read, <laughs> they know the name of these people. And if you can achieve that level yeah. of success as a commercial writer, and that's really what I wanted to do. Yeah. But as it turned out, I it, it doesn't fit my psyche for, for whatever reason... <laughs> I wanted to write whatever the hell I wanted to write. Yeah, yeah. And one agent at the time said, I have some ideas. you got to write this up. Um, 
You know, there's no one knows this, but from the very beginning, there's a problem with nuclear warheads going back to 1945. Yeah. And one scientist knows it, and he's got, you know, they come up with these, these you know, ideas mm-hmm. that, were, that were, you know, bumper stickers, and that's what you do. Right, You know, you right. take that, and then you write the book, and it sells 3,000 copies, 5,000, 10,000 copies, you know. Yeah. And maybe Hollywood's interested in making a B-movie, and then you write the next one. Right. And... My problem, and it's a severe problem that got me, you know, that stopped me from doing that was my time is valuable. Yeah. I want to write what I want to write. Yeah. And that's, no, you don't want to think that way if you're trying to become a successful commercial author. Right. You know, you follow the path that's been tried and proven. Right. And so I just- Nowadays, it would be, we're going to start you off with some Star Trek novels. Exactly. Whatever, you know. Exactly. And And the last agent that I had- um, I had written a book called Magicians, mm-hmm. and it finally got into print through him as uh, The Fairy Rules of Evil. And um, I'd been out of print for a long time because I decided, you know, my time is valuable. Blah, blah. So I shot myself in the foot, you know, I got in my own way. And I, but I ended up teaching English. You were artistically true to I was artistically true to, to my, you know. Not to, enough people to do To my that. gifts. No, no, I'm... I'm I'm poor but happy writing my stuff that nobody reads and publishes, you know. <laughs> but I'm true to myself. So so after um um you know, eating crow pie or whatever, after, mm-hmm. you know, doing that, um uh and getting a whole lot of fantasy published all at once in eighty two, eighty three, because it coincided I was writing like crazy and all of it kinda got into print. Mm-hmm. Um but I wasn't able to take the next step, mm-hmm. you know, and I wasn't able to turn that into the next the next thing. Because uh, I was tired. I, I don't think I had a nervous breakdown, but maybe the closest thing to it. I had mm-hmm. been typing every day into the night for something like two years, you know. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. And and I know it contributed to the end of, of my marriage at the time. Um, so I paid the price. But um, uh, what what happened was is that I wound up becoming an English teacher in a mm-hmm. business school that, that trained court reporters and legal uh, um, assistance and stuff. And then from that, I moved back into writing advertising copy, which I had done for a while. And then, you know, by one thing or another, you know, you do what you can to keep your head above water. Um, I got into medical publishing. I became a medical editor, you mm-hmm. know, in Cleveland. And that was a true fit. That was a good fit. I loved, I loved teaching English mm-hmm. um, to adults, but I, I never got a teaching degree or anything. So I could teach in adult settings, you know. Right. Um, and I really loved doing that, but there's a million people who know how to do that too. But um, when I got into to medical editing, I really found my niche. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was good at it, and I liked it. You know, right. and it was science, right. and it was I could correct you know doctors and scientists on their, their grammar <laughs> and syntax. You know, so it's like you know, so I so what did I end up doing that for twenty years or something. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, but while I was doing that, I mean, I, and back when I was writing advertising copy. I wrote um, Magicians, and because I was such an, an artiste, um, I, I wrote it the way that I'd learned to write advertising copy, which is very abrupt mm-hmm. and succinct. And if you read too much advertising copy, it'll make your head spin, you know. So yeah. said, this is ideal for horses. It's, pu- it's all punches. It's all no, punches, yeah. yeah, exactly, you know. So I used that to write The Fair Rules of Evil and to try to unnerve people if you sit and read it for any length, mm-hmm. you know. So I, it was an artistic experiment. So I tried that. And um, the agent who, who bought it um, said, you know, your book really unnerved me and, and scared me, you know, mm-hmm. the way it was written and, and the concept kind of turned you upside down. So if, if I start you off here and you follow me on the trail, everything you know about reality, religion, and the universe and magic, and all you know, it kind of turns it upside down. So now, mm-hmm. now I got you. You're the fly in the bottle. I got right. you, you know, and I'm going to scare you. Um, so he wanted to represent it. And I was fine with that, um, except that I had already written a letter to Doubleday, who had originally published Stephen King. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to write to Doubleday. They published Stephen King. You know, his. Maybe they'll publish my new book that I've written after umpteen years of not writing. And I got a nice letter back from one of the editors there. And so I told this agent about it. And he said, don't worry about it. We don't need Doubleday. I know how to bring writers along. And I said, but it's Doubleday. <laughs> <You know, laughs> right. They publish all the science fiction and fantasy and horror. Right, you know, right. um, no, I'm going I'm to do it my way. Well, this guy had had been um, uh, an editor, a representative, or I think he'd been an editor for YA books mm-hmm. at at some publisher. And what I should have done 
But this is, this is still how naive and trusting I was, or thinking that this is the way professionals, not naive, this is how professionals handle themselves. I mm -hmm. now have an agent. I will let the agent do what he knows how to do. Right. So what I should have done was give the finger to this agent yeah. and set my manuscript to Doubleday and then say, Doubleday has the manuscript. Please talk to them. Right, right. Instead, what happened? You go talk to the people I've already half done. I've already work. done half the work for, you know, for you. But I didn't because I'm thinking I'm on a professional track. And so he, he tried paperback publishers because he wanted to build his little empire on paperback originals and representing authors who could crank out stuff, you know, in a regular way, mm -hmm. um, which was his gig. But I wanted to be published, you know, like more yeah. professional. So, so once again, I, I got in my own way. I made a mistake. And um, it ended up being published by Avon Books, uh -huh. who are perfectly yeah, reputable they're, publisher. They're not nobody. They're not nobody by any means. They've been around, you know, forever. Um, and they published a wide variety. If you go back and go to used bookstores and find stuff they did in the 40s, 50s, you know, mm -hmm. early 60s, you know, they did a wealth of a variety of stuff. But this is now the, the late 80s, early 90s. They had been extraordinarily successful doing um, romance. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, you think of Avon, you think of romance mm -hmm. novels. Um, but the editor there who, who bought Fair, what became Fairwells of Evil, bought magicians, was John Douglas, mm -hmm. who was very highly regarded in the science fiction and fantasy community, as was his wife, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so they're part of this community that goes all the way back to fanzine days and, and all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, so he bought it, and... Initially, I, I, I still have the cover proof they did for it. It was going to be an embossed cover proof. Um, it was going to be done. It was kind of a big deal, you know, mm -hmm. um, as far as paperbacks go. And then when it came out, it just had this regular cover, and I got a box of 25 novels or whatever, and I couldn't find it at, at bookstores. Hmm. Now, I suppose Barnes & Noble's around then. At that time, it would be like Walden Books, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and places like that. Coles. Cole, yeah, Coles exactly. the book people. Cole, yeah, yeah, exactly. That yeah. Kind of, yeah, exactly. And so I go there and I can't find my book. Um, but there's a newsstand where it's living in Akron, downtown Akron. Mm -hmm. And I got to know the guy who, who was the, the counter guy there. This has got to be depressing now. This I'm is so you're, Have I depressed you're, I'm, you I'm, enough? My book is out. I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to see it sitting there I'm on the see shelf. It, you know, because a couple of years earlier, I mean, back at around 82, 83, yeah. I did book signings for like Aura Number 4, yeah. you know, and right. for the three volumes of the Fall of the First World and mm -hmm. the Red Sonja books that Dick Tierney and I co you know. So I had my moment there yeah, <clears throat> where I could go to what was in the science fiction section of the book stand mm -hmm. at Walden Books. And there was a point there, it must have been around 82, where um, they reprinted some of the Zebra books. Um, Ace was bringing out the Red Sonja novels that, that Dick Tierney and I wrote. Um, and Zebra was coming out with, with the Oron books. So it was like this moment for heroic fantasy or for sword and sorcery. Mm -hmm. And I was the guy who had like for a month or two the most books there in that. I should have gone back and taken a photo of it, you know, the most books. Mm -hmm. And I remember a guy coming. He was looking. He said, oh, I'm interested in this kind of writing. He said, oh, let's try this guy, you know, Dave Smith. You know, yeah. I heard he's pretty good. Oh, okay, thanks. So, <laughs> you know, so I sold one of my books. Um, but then that that passes, that's gone with the wind. That passes, right. you know, like, like a dust moat in the air, you know. So... Um, by the time Avon brought out uh, The Fair Rules of Evil, um, which I really liked the title Magicians, mm -hmm. and, I, and I thought it could be a logo instead of a, an A, you use a star, a pentagram, you know, right, right, and yeah. it's kind of like this concept thing, you know. Um, no, no, we're going to call it, he had to come up with a new title for it called The Fair Rules of Evil, which kind of has a ring to it, you yeah, know, but he hated yeah. the title Magicians. Never mind that 20 years later, this guy gets a bestseller because right. of a book called Magicians, <laughs> right, you know, right. and gets a show on sci-fi or something, you know. So um, uh, it came out, and I couldn't find it at bookstores. And I asked bookstores about it, and they said it's not on our promotional list. So what's going on? Well, they didn't tell the sales staff to promote it. Um, and I, I know another author who's an old friend of mine, who had a horror novel published by Avon then, mm -hmm. and he had the same story. And there's a, there's a it's few... It's an interesting these... marketing tactic. Well, exactly. You know, don't promote the book at all. <laughs> and then the story I tell is, I could, however, find it in the porn bookstore in downtown Akron. Okay. Because if you if you go into... There was a... a it was took up a, a quarter of a block on uh -huh. this corner of Akron across from 
O'Neill's department store, where I used to write advertising copy. And you go in there, and this, this place was huge. Newspapers, magazines from around the world. Um, that's where you bought Time Magazine. That's where you bought, you know, your news magazine from France. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's where you bought the out-of-town papers. I mean, we're all familiar with, the, with these places. Um, and they had the, the spinning racks of paperbacks. Mm-hmm. And that's where I found the Fairy Rules of Evil, next to detective novels and all this other stuff. Right. Now, if you go to the counter to buy the detective novel, you stay on this side of the, the, the bat wing door, the swinging door, uh-huh. you're, you're fine, you know. But if you want to buy your porn, you go through the, the, the swinging door. Right. And that's where the VHS videos were and, and right. the porn makes and everything. The dim lights. The dim lights, <laughs> you know, and, and the marital aids and everything. So this place was huge, and that's where you went to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I always said I couldn't find it at Walden Books. Yeah. You know, but I could find it in the porn bookstore and and in the paperback rack of grocery stores. Right, you know, right, right. Because that's they like, used to have those, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where the, the guys, you know, from whoever it might have been, the distributor, that's where they put these things. Uh-huh. You know. But they didn't unload. And there's no these. buyers. Nobody's making the decision. There's exactly. just a dude who shows up every couple of they've weeks already and fills the, the rack. They've already <laughs> made the call for what they want at Walden Books. Right, right. right. So these are the paperbacks. They're going to going to go into you know. We printed them. We got to put them. We got to do something with them, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so it never did sell out. I mean, they lost their money on it. But John Douglas liked it enough that he sold. I sold my agent on the idea. It's like you don't want this idea of mine or this idea of mine. How about a sequel to the mm-hmm. Fair Rules of Evil? And he's like, Yeah, I think John will buy that. And mm-hmm. John Douglas bought it. And um, so now I wrote a conventional hair raising, you know, horror story. I didn't do any artsy fartsy stuff. I just wrote, you know, right. Here's a scary story. And I borrowed from Hitchcock. Most of it is kind of like a, a car chase, you know. Okay. From Cincinnati back to what's kind of like Youngstown, Ohio, like in Ohio. Um, and and the young man who practices black magic is trying to save the life of a girl who's been impregnated by her father who's a head of a demonic cult or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And it works. I mean, it was really, you know, it's it it's worked. I borrowed from Hitchcock and the tension is there. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, there's a um, Seven Samurai. There's a show-off at the house right. that's buried in snow. They've got to protect themselves from these demonic people and everything. And it's great. It worked. You're you know? borrowing from the best. I'm borrowing from yeah. the best. And what I decided to do with the end for the ending is end it on a high note, you know. Mm-hmm. So the so the so it's got a curtain line. That's really a curtain line, you know. Uh-huh. I mean, this guy, long distance through his black magic, is able to defeat the bad guy, you uh-huh. know. And it builds and it builds and it builds, and you're with him while he's doing the ceremony, and it builds. Then they end it on that high pitch, you know. Uh-huh. So that's the curtain line, you know. Yeah. You're like, whoa, you know, what, you know. <laughs> so I don't let you off easy. So it was it was fun to write. It it was great. Um, but once again, it never sold because you, you could only find it in, in you know, porn bookstores, the grocery right, right, store, yeah, whatever, yeah. you know. You know the, the or yeah the the, yeah. the you know the quarter place you know the quick yeah. quick mart or whatever we, we used know. to have the newsstand that's here it in town. that's it you know you'd go there and little paperback rack every that's we grew up with that that's yeah. that's what these were and it was it was the midlist books yeah you know yeah it was the midlist books and that's where I found Robert E Howard in the 1960s mm-hmm. when I went to Gray Drugstore mm-hmm. and that's where you went for the the Ellery Queen yeah, you know yeah. mysteries. And then, and then they might do some crossword puzzle books, or they might reprint the classics, you know. Right, right. And it wasn't the A, they had the A-list stuff, the paperback, you know, versions of, of what had been hardcover, you know, sales. Yeah. Um, but they also had the mid-list. And if you're starting out as a writer of paperback novels, that's where you started out. Yeah. And that's where I started out, you know. <clears throat> Oron books and Red Sonja books, that was, that was the mid-list. Yeah. You know, they weren't going to be published by, by hardcover, you know, by right. the big six, you know, or now the big five, you know. Right. But this is where you got your start. That's where the science fiction authors were published. And it was legitimate. It was professional. You made a sale. You right. know, right. you got paid and you had readers. And then you you ramp up from there, you know, mm-hmm. until you write what my former agent called the, the breakout book. You know, so you'll write your breakout book, you know. Right. Um, and that, that never happened, you know. The, uh, um, uh, John Douglas wanted to publish a third of these magician's types books, but the first two didn't, didn't make any money. Well, it's hard to cu- make the business. You kind of loaded the game against me, you know. Right, like the yeah. dice were loaded, you know. Um, it's never their fault. Though. It's never their fault, yeah. you know. They're, you know. <laughs> so I was, I was barely on on the mid list, you know. And now, as we see with with all of the, um, uh, um, what do you want to call them, the rock star authors, you know, and the right. high concept stuff, um, 
what you find now at the at the the drugstore, you know, or the at the supermarket. I mean, it's all A list writers, and all this has been engineered corporately. You know, right. they well, come out with the hardcover, and then six months or a year later, whatever, it's in paperback, right. and it's on the shelf. At they don't even do that stores. anymore. It's just all paperback originals. Yeah, and romance sort of led the way with this because all these romance writers, they would have a Fabio Fabio pose for the cover, you know, right, the right. He-Man in the torn shirt, you know, and, right. and the, the bodice rippers, as they called them, you know. Yeah. And this is the bulk of paperback sales. Mm-hmm. Um, and these authors are trusted and well-known. This is, this is the, it's business, you know, it's, right. now it's a very corporate business, um, rather than being kind of slapdash the way it was in the 60s and 70s with me, where, you know, you take a chance on a book, right. somebody would tell, take a chance, you know. Um, so now it's, it's all the A-list stuff. With the bodice rippers and the romance, and uh, a great deal of suspense now. You know, there's, there's there's many very good suspense writers now. You know, right? And they have their niche. You know, right? Right. Um, so they do. You know, the the family suspense stuff, or or it's espionage. You know, right? Um, it's worldwide. You know, and, and I've met some of these writers. You know, at, at you know writers workshops and meetings around Chicago. A lot of them are based in Chicago, and they're doing very very well. Mm-hmm. You know, and. So I could probably get into that if if I wanted to, you know, I could I could try to market something like that, but I don't have an agent, um, and I, I've always, you know, I've never been too successful when I've had an agent. Maybe I'm a <laughs> you pain might be better off them. without. I, maybe I'm better agent. off with them. So where this comes around f- full circle is is the publisher in New York, um, um, Bob McLean, who contacted me. He originally wanted to, to reprint some of my older books that had mm-hmm. gone out of print, you know. And we're still going to do some of that. Um, it won't be the Red Sonja novels, um, but it's going to be the Orons, you know, uh-huh. and and some of these other these other books of mine. So we're going to do those. Um, um, but the way it started was he wanted to know if I had the rights to some of these, and I have the rights to mine, not to the stuff that I wrote for the Howard, Howard Estate, you know. Uh-huh. But... Um, I said I I have my old stuff, and then I'm working on this story. I'm I'm three quarters of the way done with this manuscript. I'm three quarters of the way done with this manuscript. I got this one that's been sitting there, so he he wants to look at all that stuff, um, and some of the stuff like I publish in, in independently. But he wondered if um, I knew anyone who wanted to write a biography of Robert E. Howard. Mm-hmm. Now this goes back to June July, 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, 2018 and no no 2017 yeah be be 2017 yeah 2017 and i said what about this author what about that author you know and maybe mark finn would want to do a rewritten anything well mark had had written his book you know um and then he asked me if i wanted to do it Mm -hmm. and um and this is something you've never really done before i've never really done this before yeah no not not style writing not at all you know um but i knew that there was more to howard in this literary sense, mm-hmm. than most people were aware of, at least a general audience mm-hmm. was aware of. Um, so I got the idea that if, if I, as a professional writer, um, looked over his shoulder year by year, story by story, watching him grow as a working writer to become a professional writer, mm-hmm. I, I might be able to tease out some threads or some strands that would be very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. For me and for general readership, and and for a lot of Robert E. Howard fans as well, um, so that that was my pitch. Um, that was my pitch, and I said I want I want to write a book that some of my coworkers might be interested in reading. Mm-hmm. They they've heard the name Robert E. Howard, maybe they've heard of Conan the Barbarian, certainly, almost certainly, almost yeah. certainly, you know, it's like <laughs> Superman or Sherlock Holmes. But I want to approach him. As a writer in his place and time, mm-hmm. as he learned to become a writer and and how he went through doing that, mm-hmm. and we'll look at the man and we'll and we'll look at the work. Um, so it'll be kind of like a literary look at him. And he said, "Yeah, let's let's do that. I, I like that idea." Mm-hmm. So I sat down, and as it turns out, I have a whole lot of Robert E. Howard stuff mm-hmm. because um, some of the the one offs that I had written, you know, um, back in the day, were based on Robert E. Howard characters. And Dick Tierney and I had developed the Red Sonja character. You know, she'd mm-hmm. been in comic books, and we had developed her for, for the paperbacks. And I always liked Howard's writing anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, as some of the small presses came out with his stuff, and I'd worked with, with Glenn Lord. Glenn Lord, when I was writing the Howard 
the Howard stories. He's the guy that I corresponded with, and he was the executor of the estate, mm -hmm. and he was a Texan, and he was one of the finest men you'd want to know. You know, mm -hmm. he was a great guy. Um, so I, I was familiar with all this, and so as stuff would come out, um, maybe Glenn had edited a collection of something. Well, I would order that from the small presses. Uh -huh. So I had the selected letters. Um, I had copies of, um, what was the little journal that he put out? Um, uh, it wasn't the Hyborian Age, I think, uh, but whatever it was. He used to, because he had access to everything mm -hmm. unpublished by Howard. So he put out a, a small um, digest-size book a couple of times a year for a long time. So here's the letter that Howard wrote, first time it was in print. Mm -hmm. that Howard wrote to Farnsworth Wright, they had a weird tales, saying, right. you owe me $800 or $1,000. <laughs> yeah. You voted to me for over a year. Yeah. My mom is very sick. Yeah. You know, we need to pay the bills. Um, so you got these insights in, into Howard's private life, you know, and, and here's the poem that he wrote and recast three times. Well, here's, you know, mm -hmm. Glenn, you know, reproduced those. Um, here's the short story that he wrote in high school, you know, that he got paid a $50 gold piece for you. And well, here's that short story. So all this wealth of this background information on this guy. Um, and you read it and, and you're living it along with him. I mean, this guy is, Howard is, is a young man so sincere about his writing. And, and he's honest. I mean, all this stuff comes from the gut. I mean, and all through his writing career, I mean, this is him. You know, yeah. this is him. Um, One of the things that I thought w was interesting that you touched on in the book too is uh, you don't really. I, I mean, you're you're giving a pretty unvarnished look at him, sure. And you know, I mean, he he was to some degree a product of his times. His sure. racial views were were not always warm and fuzzy, right? Um, you know, I mean, it, it sounds like they he wasn't he wasn't completely a clear cut racist but but there was nuances that he had, he had different it wasn't something you could summarize necessarily in a sentence but he wasn't necessarily somebody who would have been accepted at a cocktail party in the 21st century Ab absolutely um, not but know. for his time his you know he was working on being a little more enlightened you know at least right. a little more open um, and he was getting and certainly, you know, uh, less so than some of his contemporaries oh, like uh, Lovecraft. I mean, I've read quite a bit of his and, you know, sometimes it's the, the he, disturbing he, part is where he's coming from. He was highly racist. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. You know, um, and, and with Howard, he was like, I mean, I, I left out as much stuff as I could have put in here. But for instance, when it comes to like social justice or, or things, you know, he, in one of his letters, I forget who it's to, it might have been to Lovecraft. But he talks about there's there's two Mexican boys um, who had committed some trivial crime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's on their side. It's like they should never have been treated this way, you know, for what they did. And a white man wouldn't have been treated this way. Right, right, know? right, right. So he's on record with it's a number still of those. still true, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. you know. So he's on record with a number of those things, you know. Um, at the same time, he wasn't us. Um, and so the, the woman that he dated the last year and a half who was alive, Novelin Price, you know, the, mm -hmm. the teacher, she was very forward looking and she was, you know, she was us, you yeah, know, more progressive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so she would, she would set him correct on some of this stuff, you know, about how this elderly black man who did things, you know, yeah. she said, you know, basically, I don't care what color is, he's one of the finest men. In, in this part of the country, you know. Right, right, right. Well, I don't know about that. You know, it's like, I don't care what color his skin is. No. He's one of the finest men, you know, this part of the country. So, so um, he was getting there, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, had he not died at age 30? Exactly, I yeah. Mean, you know, he died at, thir what, at age yeah, 30, yeah. yeah. He, was, he was 30 and a half, 30 years and six months old. Um, so, but one of his best friends became basically a white supremacist. I mean, in old age, you know, yeah, how did yeah, it that okay, long, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so these men were product of their time. Um, you know, they looked around and judged things as they did. Um, Howard, I think, just by the fact that he was well-read, knew his history, mm -hmm. was artistically inclined, and his, his girlfriend or the teacher, you know, Novel and some of his other friends, um, he, he wasn't, you know, he, he was moving in a direction clo closer to us. He had some social how, pressures. Exactly. On, yeah. how, how could he not, right. if he's reading widely... You know, becoming aware of history, you know, thinking about, about things, you know. Right. Um, so even if they, you know, so even if they were Indians, you know, right. he, he could see um, them as a culture 
it was perfectly acceptable. Not as a group of savages. Not as a group of savages. Which was a you know, common uh, exactly. thought at the time. Or exactly. Yeah, and right. his, his, like he was fascinated with the Picts. Uh-huh. This the you know the historical you know culture in in Scotland, mm-hmm. but the way he first came across it, he made them into um, like a barbaric race, you right, know, right, right. which is kind of noble. And in his, and in his view, they were kind of noble. Right. You know, his most famous character is a barbarian. Exactly. You know, and then what happens, you know, also is that the Picts in his later stories kind of become quasi um, East Coast American Indians, you know, mm-hmm. um, and he treats them with respect. You know, right, now they're right. barbaric. That's not a bad thing to him, you know. They are um, working class people, you know. It's like, right, don't right. start something you can't stop. You know, they have their own code, you know, which he respects. Um, so so this is where, you know, he's starting to make, you know, what we would think is steps in the right direction about this kind of stuff. But it, Go ahead. I was just going to say, because uh, I, I think we're close to wrapping time-wise. But, sure, that's um, fine. But... but you know, the, this book, I, I think that one of your goals, and I think you succeeded in it, mm-hmm. is uh, to really show that Howard deserves his due, which I, I think maybe has not always been the case. Well, that's absolutely that true. Yeah. yeah, it's true. And and one of the reasons for that is because um, after uh, the, the Second World War, mm-hmm. um, the the tone of American society was very scientifically and technologically oriented, you mm-hmm. know. Um, the, the horror movies, you know, the gothic stuff of the thirties and forties, um, was replaced largely, for instance, in popular culture, um, with bug-eyed monsters from Mars movies and giant insects who became, you know, monsters because of radioactivity and that kind of stuff, you know? So, um, there wasn't much of a market for, for this kind of stuff. There was for historical fiction, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, even in the movies and in the fifties was a, a tremendous period for historical fiction. You know, mm-hmm. I read a lot of that stuff when I was growing up, you know, the, a lot of the, um, those writers and if Howard had lived, I mean, he probably would have been right there in that company writing lots of good historical fiction. You know, mm-hmm. the, the historical fiction that he wrote was, um, brutally honest and had been in short stories and novelettes, mm-hmm. you know, um, the only thing of his that really seemed to be marketable in a sense were the Conan stories, because a lot of readers from that period had remembered the Conan stories. Mm-hmm. So what happened was that um, there was a science fiction author named Sprague de Camp mm-hmm. who made it his business to become involved in promoting Conan. He's very honest about this. He was mm-hmm. doing it for the money. Um, he also made sure that when these stories were, when the copyright was, was renewed, it was in his name. And he made sure that he and his co-author, Lynn Carter, wrote new Conan stories, uh-huh. copyrighted in their name. Right. So he took charge, and, and there's all the historical record for this. The, you know, the people at the Howard Foundation know this, the fans know this, you know. Uh-huh. And we've known this since, since the 60s and 70s, what Sprig de Camp was about. He wanted to own this character and promote it for his own money-making venture. Uh-huh. Now, okay, this is a this is a commercial, you know, we understand capitalism in this country. Right. And if you can come up with, with a concept that's a successful commercial enterprise, go for it, you know. Right. Except that what DeCamp did was not develop, you know, he didn't originate Conan the Barbarian. Right. He took over, and he was the least qualified person <laughs> to step into Howard's shoes and write about a noble, uh, not a noble, a barbarian, you know, right, who right. follows his own code. This guy um, was an engineer, and he'd served in the Navy, and he was like... Like the whitest kids on your block. I mean, he he was like, you know, the prototypical slide rule guy of America right, in the fifties. Right. You know, he he doesn't understand where Herod was coming from from this stuff, and he didn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, he he wrote a comment one time saying that he basically saw Conan the Barbarian as an overgrown juvenile delinquent. Mm-hmm. Now this is back in the fifties when that meant like a, a gangster or, or you know right. being in a gang or something like that. You know, just which based like on my reading person. of your interpretation is is just really does a disservice. It to does a total disservice. And and those of us who are Howard fans and and have taken the trouble to really look at stuff through his eyes as best as we can and understand where he's coming from, we know that that's that's farcical and and you know unethical and criminal if there is criminal codes about that. But nevertheless, this is the guy mm-hmm. who, for a period of decades, took control of the Conan brand. Right. Um, so I don't know if you recall or not, but in the in the nineties, um, there was a whole slate of Conan the Barbarian paperbacks. 
and they were, I think it was Tor brought them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were all done according to uh, the Bible that, that, in the sense, you know, the Sprague de Camp created. Mm-hmm. Here's Conan's world. Here's the Conan character. You want to write one of these novels. Here's the procedure we're following. Like if you were going to write, you know, for, right. for a TV series or, right. you know. Here's the background. Here's the, ba- that's the Bible. That's the background. Here's the do's and don'ts for the character. Here's what it is. You right. Know? So with this knowledge about how we create these, these novels, go ahead and send me, you know, an outline, you know, a draft on how you want to do a Conan novel. And there was a whole wealth of, of young writers who got into print the first time doing this, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, what's his name? Jordan. Robert Jordan was one of them. And then uh-huh. he went on to create right. his own large series, you know. There's a young guy that I met, and I'm going to forget his name, but he wrote Conan, Conan of the Green Isles or Conan of the, um, what was it? Whatever, not the Green Isles, but that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Of all those that were written, <laughs> he, he, he caught the Howard, you know, uh, um, vibe. Right. Um, but not only that, but you couldn't then, while these books were available, you couldn't go back and get Howard's original stories. Ah. Sprague de Camp kept them, kept them out of print. So what had, he finally died. Mm-hmm. Um, Pache and Rick Rieska, you know, whatever. Right. Um, Rick Rieska and Pache Eternitas. But um, that then allowed true Howard scholars to get to work um, in the late aughts, in the aughts, and um, begin going back to Howard's original material, not just promoting it, but I mean going on record with this stuff. So if you've seen those very large Ballantine books, you know, the trade paperback size, they're as as thick as your arm, you know, Mm -hmm. with all the Howard stories. Rusty Burke is involved with those. Patrice Lewinette is involved with those. Um, the late, um, oh, good. Steve Tompkins was involved with those. Uh, Scott Oden wrote an introduction to one of them. So these scholars who are truly vested in um, making Howard, the true Howard, accessible to a new general readership, these are the guys who did that hard work and, and did that with, with these stories. Um, the Conan stories, and then all the other ones, too. So this is what you're reading now. They went back to as far back as they could go. There were many original manuscripts still mm-hmm. that, um, that were found in the trunk where he kept all of his, his, you know, his work. It still exists. Glenn Lord had it for a long mm-hmm. time. Um, before him, someone else had it. But, I mean, this is, this is the, the, the source material for didn't this stuff. Didn't get destroyed you know? in a fire. Didn't get destroyed in a fire. It didn't get lost in a basement flood, you know. Right, all right. All this kind of stuff, you know. So... What we now have, um, all we now have all of Howard's stuff, mm-hmm. going back to the stuff he wrote in grade school, you know, oh. um, and as much poetry as as these experts have been able to track down, mm-hmm. because he was first and most foremost a poet, as as his friend Tevis Clyde Smith said, and that's the way he approached life was artistically, and he saw it, as Rusty Burke says in the in the um, introduction to the to my to my um, biography. He always lived in story, mm-hmm. and that's what's so powerful about it. I mean, he always saw everything as story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean a plot, but it means he saw it as that's the human condition as he saw it. That's the human spirit, let's say, as he saw it. It's it's in story. Um, and I react to this. This hit me very hard when when Rusty was talking about that, because one of the books that I that I reference is one about Homer's um, Iliad and Odyssey. And uh, I think it's the one by Adam Nicholson. It is the one by Adam Nicholson. And when he gets to the end ed, ed, ed of his book, Why Homer? Why Homer? Why read Homer? Um, and one of the things that he gets to at the end of his book is like, why did these heroes go to war? What was in it for them? Now, we know the very earliest stuff was about cattle raids and getting women and mm-hmm. controlling, you know. But one of the big things about, about this is that it becomes a really good story to tell. And we still love hearing the story of Achilles yeah. and, and of Odysseus and of Agamemnon, you know, um, and of Helen in Egypt and all these stories. We still love hearing these stories. That's story. And that's what Howard was going after with yeah. Conan and with, his, with his, um, uh, uh, his stories of the Crusades, you know. And this is where his brain worked. And he brought to it the poetry mm-hmm. that, that he was so good at writing and that he loved reading. And he brought to it the frontier, which is story. 
Right. He heard these legends. I mean, he he heard what had happened from some of these old timers from their own their own miles, you know, mm-hmm. when they were still fighting Comanches and when people were still settling the land. Right. His mother used to visit relatives who lived in what was still Indian territory. Mm-hmm. This is all real to him. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is right there. Um, so the benefit for us, if we're open to it, and not everyone is, but the benefit for us is to read Howard's stories in this way. Not as tells about a juvenile delinquent, you know, mm-hmm. or that kind of nonsense, um, but from the gut, so that we're in story. We're in the land of story, of legend, you know, of myth, of Achilles. Right. And that's, that's what he was bringing. That's, that's what he was doing. <clears throat> and so toward the end of his life, when he was done writing Conan, because they'd run out of, I hope I'm still talking on the microphone here. Um, <laughs> when he started writing the truly professional stuff, it became very po- polished. And as Steve Tompkins, Tompkins called it, like pre- precision guided, you know, writing, which is the, the thoroughly professional writing, level of writing that he achieved which is equal to what Ray Bradbury did and what Lee Brackett did and what John D. McDonald did and, and these writers, you know. So he was there. He got there Yeah. Um, with the last stories that, that he published uh, before he killed himself, which is what he did. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, heartbreaking. It is. But, you know, I mean, now he has a chance at a renaissance, so. Well, he does. And he does. There's, a lot of scholars have done this work before I got here. I've added my two cents worth of my biography, I hope, you know, people will look at it and maybe it'll open their minds a little bit. Um, but there are a lot of us who are championing his work now um, so that we can see him as an important American popular writer mm-hmm. from mid-20th century, right along with um, John D. MacDonald and um, Ray Bradbury and the other writers of, of his time. There Absolutely. It is. Well, yeah. I think you did a great job, Dave. And, well, thank and you. You managed to get through this without saying who should be impeached. So, <laughs> did I, did great I really? job, I man. So. Thank, thank you, you man, very, very much. much. Thank did you. Did we Dave. do it in an hour? It seemed like I was talking a long time. Oh, we were way over. An we hour. were way over an hour, as I thought. We were way over an hour. <laughs> That's okay. You're gonna have an. <laughs> Okay, well, that was David C. Smith Part 2. That's all the David C. Smith that we have in the can right now. Uh, you know, who knows? He may show up again. Uh, always possible. But uh, right now I'm trying to, you know, keep the, keep the ball rolling downhill and finding new people. I've got another exciting episode coming up in a couple of weeks. So look for that. And I don't want to say who it is, but it's already been recorded and it's already ready to go. So we'll see you in a couple of weeks. And uh, you have a great one. Hey!